back for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Eric Mills, Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, and we're excited about the November-December issue, which should currently be in your hands. If not, it's available on newsstands as we speak. The theme of this is the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Tarawa, that hard-fought fight that started the push through the Central Pacific. Um, we have some great coverage of it in the magazine. As you'll see, if you have it in front of you or you can go online and read it, um, a beautiful summary overview of it. And in addition, we talk about the um, the airstrikes prior to it uh, from the fast carrier attack groups um, about a month earlier before the actual assault of the Marines on BTO Island in Tarawa. That iconic, difficult struggle of 72 plus hours that uh, took its toll on the Corps, but also taught them a whole lot of lessons. And it's very timely that as this issue is out, um, there's a brand new book out from Naval Institute Press. I highly recommend it um, if you're enjoying the magazine, Delivering Destruction, American Firepower and Amphibious Assault from Tarawa to Iwo Jima by Chris K. Hemmler. And we're glad to have Chris join us today um, to talk about this book that ties in so beautifully with uh, this current issue of the magazine. Chris, welcome aboard. Thanks so much, Eric. Uh, truly a pleasure to be with you today. Oh, great. Well, thank you. Well, for our uh, viewers, uh, Chris spent 10 years on active duty in the U.S. Marine Corps, and he holds a Ph.D. in military history from Texas A&M University. And um, his book is a very um, in-depth look at uh, hard lessons learned, and it kind of myth busts perhaps a little bit in terms of uh, what were the keys and the ingredients to victory in the Pacific and uh, for the Corps and what they learned emerging from all that. And he's, we start in the book with Tarawa, which we'll talk about right now. But, of course, he goes forward, hopping ever closer to the Japanese home islands. So, uh, Chris, why don't you set the stage for us? Tarawa was a great, big, huge basket of lessons learned for the Marine Corps, was it not? It absolutely is. Um, you, you're right to, to start there. Um, the Marines had to cut their teeth somewhere in the Pacific. And so Tarawa is that first uh, contested amphibious assault, a, a point that I try to emphasize in the book, and, and any time I have a chance to talk about Tarawa, you, you have the experience at Guadalcanal. Uh, the Americans have, have been introduced to their opponent, uh, we can say, in the Pacific, but they haven't been forced to take uh, to take a defended beach. And they'll do that at Tarawa uh, in the Gilbert Islands in November of 1943. And um, this was a heavily defended, as you say, this is their first contested landing. And contested is a kind of a What's the word? Uh, antiseptic sounding word for how truly defended that stretch of BDO Island was. I mean, this thing was like armed and defended to the teeth. Uh, so it was never going to be an easy, uh, easy outing. But um, that's right. A lot of things as far as communications and coordination and whatnot just did not go the Marines way that key first morning. But let's that's talk about right. how well defended this island was to start. Yeah, no, that, that's that's the right way to set up the conversation. Um, it, this is a very, very well-defended island. The Japanese forces have, have been on Tarawa, on Beishio Island in particular, since the days following uh, the attack at Pearl Harbor in, in December of 1941. Uh, Rear Admiral Shibasaki, the ranking Japanese commander, has been fortifying the island, uh, preparing his men. He's got about 5,000 troops. Uh, I think the size of the island is important to highlight. This is only six-tenths of a square uh, mile, the island of Beishio, uh, where the Marines will conduct their their uh, main assault. And so not much real estate, and yet 
that small island, island is covered by, by nearly 500 uh, concrete bunkers and blockhouses, um, a, a web of mines and, and machine gun lanes, uh, mortars, uh, et cetera, barbed wire. Uh, this is a really daunting uh, objective. Uh, and, and the Marines, unfortunately, that will encounter a number of coordination communication challenges early in the battle that will make it even more challenging. Um, the environment matters as well. There's a coral reef that, that many of the listeners will be familiar with. There's a coral reef that poses a tremendous challenge to the Marines. They don't have enough water over that reef uh, to get their, their uh, Higgins boats across it. And, and so that'll be yet another obstacle uh, on the 20th of November. Um, speaking of which, now there was supposed to be some uh, fire support. But that was based on a very rigid time frame, time schedule, right? It wasn't coordinated with what was actually going on with the Marines trying to land. And that was very detrimental too, was it not? That's right. Extremely detrimental. Uh, so the, you know, the, the Navy thinks that its pre-landing bombardment will, uh, will uh, do all that it needs to and, and put the Marines on the beach. In fact, the Marines themselves, as they're riding ashore in their landing craft, uh, there's a famous quote from Robert Sherrod, the, the, the wartime reporter, where he says, and the, he and the Marines are riding ashore here and they, and they think surely no mortal men, he writes, could live through this bombardment. Uh, they just can't believe that that any defenders will be left alive. And yet they are uh, almost every single one of them. And so um, it, it's it's difficult to believe. And yet because of the Japanese defenses, um, they're, they're able to survive this preliminary uh, bombardment. And because of those coordination challenges, uh, a number of ships, including Admiral Harry Hill's flagship, the Maryland, uh, lose communications early in the bombardment and early in the battle. And, and uh, many of the landing craft don't line up in the, in the appropriate position. And so the, the waves are disoriented. Then you have the Coral Reef Challenge. Uh, and so the attack splinters into chaos uh, on the part of the Marines. And, and they struggle to get that early momentum that's so important in an amphibious assault. Um, and, and so their, their timeline is splintered. And really for the final 20 or 25 minutes, as the Marines are, are uh, making their way ashore, they have no naval gunfire coverage. Uh, they're at the most vulnerable stage of their attack and they don't have their greatest asset, uh, which are the, the naval guns at that moment. Right. And that's when they needed them. I mean, they've already done their thing and stopped. And uh, it's like, yeah, it's, it's hard when you learn about this, but you realize how hard it was for them learning it on the ground uh, to line this stuff up better. Another thing uh, was the uh, uh, air support. Um, that never really gelled either, did it? And that was supposed to be a component of this. It didn't. It didn't. So because of many of these issues, uh, Admiral Hill orders uh, actually two different delays to the attack. First, he pushes it from 830 to 845 and, and then back to uh, back to 09 for the, the moment of touchdown. Uh, and, and that message is not communicated well uh, to the the, the uh, carrier squadrons. And so many of their timelines are thrown apart. Uh, and so the, the barrage is all uh, out of sync from the earliest moments. And so uh, as the naval guns go quiet to allow for the aircraft to pass over the beach, the aircraft aren't there. And when the aircraft do arrive, there, there, there's just a, uh, a, a challenge here to, to get uh, the pieces together on, um, behind the American attack. It almost makes you wonder, all these things not lining up as they should have, and everything, even the coral reef, even nature itself is conspiring against the Marines' effort here. Mm -hmm. Yet somehow they prevailed. Um, there is a little bit of luck involved here. I, 
I always thought it was kind of the hand of Providence that they sort of, by a lucky shot, knock out uh, Admiral Shibasaki that first afternoon. And he's very much the the spiritual, if you will, leader, the, the commander of this def- heavily defended island. And taking him out probably uh, demoralizes uh, the defenders a bit and also uncoordinates their efforts somewhat. So that was a little bit of a lucky break. But what else would lead to uh, the- absolutely um, so the loss of shibasaki is, is significant right he's, he's the one who told his detachment that that um a, a, a million americans uh couldn't take tarawa in 100 years um and he ended up being wrong but he had good reason to be confident going into the battle uh but shibasaki is killed uh in 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 that first day and despite the general ineffectiveness of the pre-landing barrage, it does knock out a number of communications networks uh, throughout the Japanese defensive um, defensive positions. And so it, it really makes it difficult for them to coordinate uh, an effective counterattack that opening night and into that second day of the battle. They're unable to bring their resources together. And so instead... Um, similar to what the Japanese do at Guadalcanal, they'll spend their forces in piecemeal bonsai attacks that, that don't accomplish um, any lasting effect on the battle. Yeah. Well, I know a whole lot of uh, blowback happening after this uh, battle. Um, the American public in general as well was, for the, I think, for the first time in this war where they're rallying behind this cause, but the footage coming out of Tarawa, the reports from the shock war correspondents, um, you start to see some doubt creeping into the uh, public reaction to all this. Uh, that's a little bit of a fallout for the um, Navy and Marine Corps at this point, is it not? And uh, how do they respond to that? And the larger question is, how do they dig in to you know, do their own reports on the lessons learned and apply those lessons as they go farther onward across mm-hmm. the well, you're right. There's uh, th- there's a lot of concern in the aftermath of the battle, right? For 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 you know less than a square mile of territory, the Marines had taken 2,300 casualties. Uh, 1,100 of those are killed in action. Admiral Nimitz will receive uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of letters from American families wondering uh, whether this objective was worth the life of of their sons. And and so this is a this is a tough moment. Uh, for the Allied forces and, and for the Central Pacific campaign, which Nimitz had, had just opened. Um, I, I think over time, we, we can place that battle in context and, and say that it is a proof of concept. The, the Americans learned that they could take a well-defended beach. They learned many of the lessons that their interwar preparation had not prepared them for, and, and they'd been preparing for this conflict for 20 years, uh, yet they didn't know all of the challenges that they would face. And so it took this um, introduction to the challenge at, at, in the Gilberts uh, for the Americans to really appreciate what they needed to do to make their way across the Central Pacific. And in fact, the, uh, the objectives that would follow would be even more well-defended, uh, larger and more, uh, more resourced from the Japanese side. Uh, so the, the challenge only grew. But they learned a number of important lessons uh, from this this scathing experience. They learned that their communications equipment had to get much better. Uh, In many cases, they needed uh, waterproof uh, radio sets for amphibious warfare uh, so that they could talk to one another. They needed common maps. Several of the communities didn't share uh, the same maps. And so this made targeting incredibly difficult uh, between the task force. 
they were really, unfortunately, fighting like three distinct communities, an aviation branch, a, a, a naval task force, and, and then a ground component. And they needed to fight as a coordinated, uh, synchronized force. And, and so many of these lessons were around that synchronization, that coordination. They, they had to learn that these battles were flexible. Uh, timelines had to be flexible. They couldn't be rigid. Uh, they couldn't be predetermined. Uh, they had to be ready to adjust to the the, uh, the, the situation on the ground. Uh, but at the same time, again, this was a proof of concept. The Marines uh, did take the island, even if at disturbing cost. And so, and it's the American response, I, I would argue, to the trauma of Tarawa that, that really proves crucial and allows them to succeed in later campaigns uh, and, and improve their approach uh, in the Central Pacific. And to its credit, uh, Admiral Nimitz really stuck to his guns on this in the face of this withering criticism he was receiving and probably not used to receiving either. Um, he he held out, uh, you know, adamantly to the fact that this was the door, this burst open the door to the, to the Central Pacific, and this was the necessary first step. Um, Samuel Elliott Morrison would say how the subsequent landings at uh, like Kwajalein and Eniwetok uh, and the marshals and whatnot, um, went um, markedly more smoothly because of the hard lessons learned at Tarawa. Would you agree with that assessment? I, I absolutely would, right. It, it, was, it was Morrison, um, you know, the, the eminent naval historian who said that this was really about ignorance. This is what he writes in, in his official history, that, that um, ignorance of, of attacking a strongly defended beach uh, was responsible for, for many errors in this attack. And that matches with with General Julian Smith, what he says after the battle, the, the commander of the Second Marine Division, who says, we simply made fewer mistakes than the Japanese. Uh, that's how we won at Tarawa, which was a you know a very humbling admission from the mm -hmm. ranking general who uh, who had done his his very best. Uh, so it, it was about ignorance and and it was about learning. And and to the Americans' credit, uh, they addressed these problems quickly. Uh, it allows them uh, really to speed through the Marshall Islands uh, and expedite their advance across the Central Pacific. And so these lessons will remain important in, in each of the uh, in each subsequent attack. You mentioned how um, the, the Marine Corps had been working on amphibious doctrine for a good couple of decades. And this is kind of sort of the testing ground of uh, what they've developed over time. Maybe let's talk about um, some of the specific ways that um, what they had preconceived and war-gamed out uh, remained, but was modified or morphed by their experience uh, mm -hmm. at Tarawa? Well, I think they, they certainly appreciated many of the challenges that they would face. They knew, to, they, knew they needed the right equipment. They knew that they needed uh, mass. They knew that they needed um, a, a, an extensive preliminary bombardment. Uh, but they, they didn't get a sense in their interwar training, particularly their fleet exercises and other marine landings of the 1920s and 1930s. They didn't force themselves to appreciate uh, the complexity of these operations and the distinct coordination required. In many of the, the uh, fleet landing exercises, the Navy would be training, the naval gunners would be training on one island while the Marines are landing on another, while the aircraft are attacking yet another. And so to bring that coordination together it just wasn't challenged in a dynamic uh, way that would inform their future operations. Uh, many of the enemy positions in the flexes are represented by flags and wooden blockhouses, which would be much different than the concrete bunkers uh, and the reinforced 
um, def- defense defensive positions that that Shibasaki and and every other Japanese commander would uh, would preside over. One um, sort of brutal instrument of war they realize is going to be crucial going forward is the flamethrower, right? Um, That's right. Talk about that a little bit. That's right. So, um, you know, representative of the war's brutality uh, and savagery, the, the Marines learn on Basio just how effective um, the flamethrower is. And so they'll need that uh, in much greater volume. Uh, they'll need it uh, more immediately in the battle. And so that'll become uh, a central component of, the, of their um, their follow-on operations. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about this follow-on operations. Um, I remind the viewers that um, Chris's book isn't strictly on Tarawa. I'm just harping on the Tarawa part because that ties in with the theme of our current issue of the magazine. And I think if you read that and then read this, you'll find they um, complement each other beautifully. And I would add that as Chris goes on in this book, following the advance across the Central Pacific, it's dovetailing with things that will be appearing in the magazine in the um, upcoming issues. The very next issue, January, February, we'll have some bits in there about um, the marshals, for example, and um, onward beyond that throughout the next year. So perfect uh, complimentary reading to go with uh, upcoming issues in naval history. So why don't we talk about that from the Gilberts to the marshals and onward. Let's talk about their advance and um, how that ties in with the themes of your book, uh, as they sort of advance and learn, advance and learn refine mm-hmm. all that sort of thing right I mean this is as you mentioned this is very much an iterative campaign where, where that right war is a is a living breathing uh, learning exercise uh, between two opponents and so the uh, the Americans uh, will continue to learn throughout the Marshall Mariana uh, and, and even even into the Bonin Islands uh, where they'll attack Iwo Jima in 1945 uh, my book focuses on the fifth amphibious Corps in particular and so I follow that unit from Tarawa through Roy Namur in the Marshalls uh, to Saipan in the Marianas, and then finally to Iwo Jima. And so these are the battles that I highlight um, in, in the book. Um, again, I'm focusing on fire control and coordination. I'm really hoping to emphasize what I call trifibious warfare in the Pacific, which is uh, the, the integration of land, sea, and air forces. It's, it's a small shift in, in, uh, in language, but I think it's an important one. Too often we, we use the word amphibious to really describe uh, what were trifibious operations. And, and so the complexity and the, the challenge of bringing together those different forces, those communities into uh, a synchronized package uh, is, uh, is in many ways the story of the Central Pacific campaign, uh, improving the, uh, their ability to cooperate, uh, improving the precision, uh, the dependence and the responsiveness of each of those arms. So the Americans will do a number of things uh, to help aid that coordination in the Marshalls and in the Marianas. They'll, uh, they'll launch a, a new administrative unit known as a JASCO, a Joint Assault Signal Company, after the attack on Tarawa. This is a new administrative company that will preside over um, shorefire control parties as well as air liaison parties. And it'll try to breed that singular culture with the landing force, uh, alongside the landing force, try to breed that singular culture uh, to bring common maps together, common radio uh, radio frequencies and channels uh, in order to get the team on the, the same page. Uh, at the same time as they're advancing this JASCO concept, the Americans launch a, a brand new naval gunfire training school in Hawaii, where uh, new ships steaming to the Pacific will be forced to, to pass a number 
of uh, of uh, of exercises in order uh, to enter the combat arena, particularly exercises around naval gunfire and communication with their troops ashore in order uh, to make that more uh, more effective. Um, by the time we get to Iwo Jima, the 5th the, the Amphibious Corps is playing with revolutionary concepts, I would argue. They're using a uh, what, what Donald Weller, the Naval Gunfire Officer of the 5th Amphibious Corps, calls a, a rolling barrage, where, net, where the naval guns will fire just in front, about 100 yards, maybe 200 yards in front of the advancing Marines as they touch down on the beach. And, and this is a, a tactic that takes a lot of practice and a lot more trust. Than, than the Americans would have had in each other uh, back at Tarawa in 1943. They'll also introduce a revolutionary concept in air control. Uh, Colonel Vernon McGee will take forward at Iwo Jima a landing force air support control unit, which is a heavy, uh, a heavy label there, a heavy title, but it is a unit that will control aircraft from the shore. Previously, those aircraft had been controlled uh, from Navy command centers uh, out at sea. And so McGee's idea is that he wants to embed the control of aircraft, close support aircraft, within the landing force in order to affect greater cooperation, precision, uh, and, and dependability. I can see how that's a real precision value add, and uh, it's quite a paradigm shift. And once you think about it, it's like, well, yeah, that makes good sense. Uh, another, the, the Pacific War is inspiring. I've often said this, and the, the fact that there's so many mistakes early on that are fixed in real time in the thick of this largest naval war ever. And that's one of the inspiring things about the, the Pacific War, I feel like, is how the Navy and the Marine Corps, um, they learn as they go in the middle of this cauldron of um, this big, huge conflagration of a fight. And they certainly do. For the Marines, for Taro Ford, um, I wanted to ask this, and because you, you brought up the term, did you coin the term "trifibious"? Because I, I have to admit, I, it was a new word to me when I read it, but it makes perfect sense. Unfortunately, I can't take credit for that. The word does exist, um, actually, in in MacArthur's uh, staff. In uh, first of all, Churchill made the phrase famous during the war. He did use the word. Uh, Winston Churchill used the word in a speech, but it also existed in MacArthur's staff in the Southwest Pacific, and so mm -hmm. it's uh, it's scattered throughout their operational documents. Uh, interestingly, to my, I, I did not come across the word in the primary sources that I used to write the book. Uh, I, I would like to believe that, that Nimitz and, and his subordinate commanders would have loved to use that word, but, but I, I didn't see it present in the sources that I used here for the book. But, but I can't take credit uh, for the word. We, well, you certainly gave it a new lease on life and uh, <laughs> relevance. Uh, I, yeah, you would think they would have flocked to that word. It's, it's... Right, right. Some summarizes a lot of things they're having to put their heads around. It certainly does. Um, what about um, larger lessons for uh, Marine Corps doctrine in a larger sense? How do you think this um, is relevant to the current Corps in terms of learning as they go and um, the kind of things they're faced with in this sort of battle environment? Mm -hmm. Maybe That's relevant again someday. It's a great question. And, and I think, you know, my research highlights uh, a few things that might apply um, today. I, I, what I hope that readers take away and applies to, uh, to Marine forces today, to American forces today, um, is just how difficult this was to mount tremendous, overwhelming uh, firepower at the beachhead during a contested assault. And so I, I hope that the complexity of that challenge 
is one that inspires uh, or rather reminds us in the present day of just how difficult it can be to coordinate firepower across domains. Uh, we've got many more domains today uh, into space and into uh, into cyber uh, realms. So, uh, but I think coordinating that firepower, uh, coordinating that destruction, will remain important for any uh, military force of the 21st century. And so, what I hope the story provides is some inspiration that American troops and, and officers had to adapt their techniques. War is is inherently about innovation and adaptation. I think that both of those need to coexist. You can have a great revolutionary idea uh, or technology, but you also have to adapt it to make it work on the ground. And this is what uh, the, the Navy and Marines uh, do in the Central Pacific. So working out those practical solutions in the field uh, was absolutely essential. I, I think the other theme that I hope the book um, messages is just how um, fundamentally human war is. Um, this is a human exercise. Uh, and, and so, uh, again, highlighting that need to adapt and, and, and be agile and be flexible and, and finally to cooperate. Uh, delivering destruction is, is a story of cooperation. Uh, and I think that's a very relevant lesson for today. These are uh, humans forced to come together to solve really difficult uh, problems. And so Marines and sailors from drastically different warfare communities and specializations have to gather and focus on a singular task. And again, I think that's a powerful lesson with, with profound implications, not just for the Marine Corps of today or, or the American military of today, but uh, across professional and organizational lines. I think it's relevant to, to the corporate environment. I think it's relevant to the, the government space. Um, you know, cooperating, uh, humans cooperating to pursue difficult, uh, challenging, uh, complex objectives. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a lesson that um, occasionally needs to be relearned. As, as you say, as more layers are added to the complexity, mm -hmm. it's good to remember those who came before and how they grappled with that and made all those complex pieces work cohesively. That's right. And then you add more on top of that, it's kind of like time to relearn those a little bit. So that's right. That's the kind of lessons the past can give to the present, and um, they're abundant in this book. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, Delivering Destruction, American Firepower and Amphibious Assault from Tarawa to Iwo Jima by Chris K. Hemmler. It's out from the Naval Institute Press. Um, good holiday gift for the Marine Corps history reader in your in your life. Uh, and for all of the readers of Naval History, this book is right up their alley, and uh, I hope they will enjoy it as well. It's been great talking with you, Chris, and great to meet you. Congratulations on a fascinating book. There's a lot of great insights in it, and I wish you luck in your uh, future endeavors along these lines. Maybe we'll see you in the magazine someday. That would be great, Eric. Thanks so much for the invitation. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. I did as well. Thanks again. Take care. That's it for us, folks, for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Eric Mills, Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, signing off until next time.